As Bruce said, my name is Mike, and I've been privileged to help lead this sermon series throughout the summer in the book of James. And uh, so if you're a guest here, special welcome to you. Uh, we're wrapping up now, so we're concluding this whole series. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to kind of put some of the pieces together of some of the things we've been talking about so far. But it's been a really great uh, experience kind of walking through this book together and just getting to see in detail the things that James has to say to us. So we're going to be in James 5 today. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip there, starting at verse 13. <clears throat> James writes this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any one of you, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, your word is powerful. We just acknowledge that right now, that we want to be people who listen to your word. We want to be people who hear from you and who respond in obedience and humility. Just as so much of this book has been about getting to the real practical matters of daily life, I just ask that even through this text you can breathe new life into our community here. And as we seek to obey you, that you can change us. You can show us more of who you are. And you can just give us more of yourself because we know that that's where fullness of joy is. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that we can approach you with confidence, without fear, without shame. We just thank you for the gift that it is to be here today. pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So often throughout this series we've been pointing out time and time again that James is a very practical book, and he's a very practical writer, and he deals with topics and issues that hit close to home. How you handle money, how you handle speech, how you control the tongue, uh, how you deal with temptation, how you pray, and these things are all rooted in his, in his belief and his view of who God is. So they're, they're very well thought through ideas, but he doesn't spend a lot of time in the abstract. He's getting right to the point and kind of telling us how we need to live in order to live as the people of God. And uh, this passage is certainly no different in terms of its practicality. And in fact, it seems like James, at the end of this letter, is, is getting at not just practical stuff. It's certainly practical stuff, not just that, but stuff everybody deals with or will deal with at some point. So for example, uh, Bruce spoke last week on the beginning part of chapter 5, and uh, 
in that section, James, in one part, he addresses wealthy employers who exploit and defraud their employees. So, so that's something that's practical. It's very important. It's very real to life. Very practical. But it's, it's definitely not the shared experience of everybody. This doesn't happen to all people. But in this context, we see James talking about things like suffering. We see James talking about things like sickness, joy, sin, and over top of all of it, prayer. And how we should pray in light of these things. So James wants to get very real as he wraps up his letter. I think that's what's going on here. He's a good teacher. He's writing this letter. It's kind of in the style of a sermon, very practical stuff. And then at the end, he's just want to leave in our minds the stuff that really ought to stick with us. And that's what he's doing. He's a good teacher. And uh, one of the common pieces of general life advice that any good teacher or a good parent or instructor or mentor will often give is something like this, where, where you say, life, life isn't about being in the right circumstances all the time, but it's about how you handle those circumstances. You know, or some other sort of variation of that idea, that it's not about having everything go well for you, but it's about how you respond to it, how you deal with it when you're in the middle of the times when things aren't going well for you. And that's what James is getting at at the end of this letter. That's exactly what we find him dealing with here. James is very aware that life throws stuff at us. He's very aware that things come down the pipe that we're not prepared for. Stuff happens. And every single time stuff happens, we're forced to respond. Right? Like we don't have a choice. Like we're forced to respond. There's always some way that we're going to react to something. And it's going to be on a scale of wise, unwise, good, bad. And so he's trying to instruct us in how to respond wisely. We do have a choice about how we'll respond. We don't have a choice whether we will. And by the way, this should all sound a little bit familiar, because if you think of some of the other things we've talked about throughout this book, this is something that has come up a few times. And at the very beginning of James, in the very first chapter, he's talking about responding to trials and suffering and difficulty, and he's talking about responding to it in a way that's wise. And he even points out we need to ask for wisdom when we're going through these things. It's not about asking to be delivered from them, necessarily. You can ask that too, but he doesn't tell us to do that. He says, ask for wisdom. Respond with wisdom. And when we do that, we can view these trials as tests. Tests that help strengthen us and give us endurance, rather than temptations to sin. And he says those are the kind of the two ways that you can respond to difficulty in life. Either these tests, these trials, or they're temptations to sin. So this, this idea, this importance of response is very familiar territory, and us being forced to need to react. And in verse 13 of this passage that we're looking at today, James gives us two different sets of circumstances, two different sets of circumstances and the corresponding wise responses that should go with them. So you see these first two things. He says, if someone among you, so within the Christian congregation, if someone among you is suffering, they need to pray. If someone is cheerful, They need to sing praises to God, like how we were just doing as a congregation together. So you're in either of these circumstances. This is what you do. This is how you handle it, James is saying. And I think we need to understand, and just to kind of catch what James is getting at and the language that he's using here, these really aren't suggestions. You know, this isn't just him saying, this is kind of the better way to do it. Like, strictly speaking, the language he's using here is an imperative. It's a command. 
It's a biblical command. And again, James is keeping everything very real and very practical. This is what you need to do. And so there's a real kind of sharp edge to this, especially when you think of it from a different angle. Uh, For example, when, when we're suffering hardship, when we're going through that and not responding in prayer, or when we're joyful and we're glad at our circumstances in life and we're thankful to God, and we're not responding with singing psalms of praise to God, we're, we're in direct disobedience to a biblical command. You know, if, if we take this seriously as a biblical command that the Word of God is giving us, we're in direct disobedience to a biblical command when we don't do those things in those circumstances. And I, I think that's pretty interesting. I think that's interesting because, you know, for both of these things, many of us are very good especially in our culture and in our time, we're very good at using the language of personal preference to kind of deflect some of this stuff and make it seem less important than it is. You know, this is, this is especially common with the, the singing thing, with the music thing, right? Uh, you know, I'm just not a musical person. That's not what I do. That's not the way that my heart worships. And we kind of use some of that sort of way of saying things. But even when it comes to prayer, this, this other side of the coin, even when it comes to prayer, this is very common, in Christian circles. And it's especially interesting when we kind of dress it up in spiritual-sounding language to get out of doing it. I don't know if you guys know people, or maybe you are people who do this sometimes, but, but it's very easy to do that. You know, we'll say, you know, I just find God is with me all the time. I'm always in the presence of God. All my life is prayer. All my life is just one constant prayer, so you know, I don't really need this explicit kind of prayer stuff. And so we have ways to kind of deflect this using the language of personal preference or personal interest. And I think James's response to us, if we said this, and if he knew we were saying this, I think James's response to us would just be to draw attention to the fact that it, it never really is about the individual in the church community. And in the New Testament, the individual is never the central thing, the central controlling factor, but it's always the collective attitudes and practices of the body, of the church family, that he's addressing, that other biblical authors address. So it's not about my personal preference when it comes to these things. I belong to a body that prays, so I pray. I belong to a body that sings, so I sing. That's the family to which I belong. And I think it's convicting and just true when we think of it that way. And, you know, for those of us who are prone to maybe being a little stuffy and critical on the whole worship music thing. That's, that's always an issue in various churches, especially in North America. For those of us who are, who are prone to be kind of critical about that, do we ever think about it that way? You know, do we ever convict our own hearts that way? You don't sing because you like the particular song or because it's done in the particular style that you like or the instrumentation is the certain way that you want. You don't sing because of those reasons. You sing because your brothers and sisters are singing. And this is a family event when we're here and we're worshiping God together. You know, and we try to be intentional about that in the language that we use and the way that we talk about these things. Announcements, it's church family life. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a family sing-along when we're doing these worship times. And that's how we need to view it. So sometimes we do need to lay down our own preferences at the door for this. And even just in, in this one little verse, James is getting at that a little bit by giving such a direct command And again, nearly always in the New Testament, in the places where we often think that the author is kind of getting at us, you know, really rightly ordering our spiritual lives and getting everything perfectly in order and dealing with all the moral issues just in our own heart, as important as that is, 
You can't neglect that. You do have to do that. That's very important. But oftentimes, in the New Testament, the real matter at hand is the spiritual health and unity of the corporate body. And that's what the Bible's often concerned to address. Because these authors know that if you're dealing with that, if you're striving for unity and peace among all of us, those other things will fall into place. So we do need to get over ourselves sometimes. And we do need to look at our brothers and sisters around us and how to best love them and serve them and be in unity with them. Again, James is about being the people of God corporately, together. How do we together reflect the image of God and look like our God? In verse 14, James goes on to give this call to those who are sick. And he says, he says that people who are sick should call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's the command. Now, there are, there are a couple interesting things that we can notice here in this text here. Uh, for one thing, most commentators on this passage would agree that the language here is pointing particularly to a, a seriously ill, possibly bedridden person, so someone who has a real serious illness, Uh, you notice that the sick person isn't told to go to the elders. This person is calling the elders to them. Uh, The elders are the ones who are told to pray, not the individual themselves. So some people think this is showing that there's a real weakness there. They're too exhausted to even pray for themselves. And uh, in the next verse over, you see the, the word that James uses for sick, he kind of repeats again, the one who is sick will be raised up. But in the original language, that, the word sick there is specifically emphasizing the, the weakness, uh, the exhaustion of the person. So there's, there's kind of a good idea here that we think James might have real serious illness in mind. Now, at the same time, this does not at all mean that this sort of prayer and anointing is only reserved, can only ever be in these examples, in these really serious ill examples. Uh, it just means that it seems that this is what James has in mind when he's talking about this here. Uh, it's, it's these people that James wants to see asking for this. If you are sick, anyone who's sick, let them call the elders to them and ask them to anoint them with oil. He, he wants to see that done. Again, it's this command. He wants this to happen. He thinks it'll lead to greater health and greater obedience. And another interesting thing in this verse is that it's the elders who are called to pray. Not one particular pastor or leader or charismatic individual, not someone who is said or has a reputation of having a particularly supernatural gift of healing. In some of Paul's letters, he talks about that, and he, want, and he says, yeah, absolutely, you should use those gifts for sure. But it's interesting, James doesn't point that out here. So you're not looking for the superhuman person who has the best prayers. You're calling the elders of the church to pray to you. It's the elders, it's the ones who are given the responsibility to nurture and lead the body, to nurture and lead the community. Again, this this community emphasis is just coming up again and again in the book of James. And we see that James doesn't want, like he doesn't want a prayer and healing ministry to kind of be off in its own little corner, existing in the church, unbeknownst to the rest of the people. This This is the closing of his letter. These are the final instructions he wants to leave to us. And he's saying, this is what you should do. You call the elders. You get them involved. This is a central thing. He wants the elders of the church, the leadership of the church, right in the thick of this sort of action, of this sort of ministry, of prayer and healing. He wants the elders to pray. Elders are called to pray. 
And I'm thankful that at Forest Grove, we, we have elders, we have, we have a council that, that have greatly increased just their desire to pray for us as a body. And they, they have a heart for prayer. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And that's an important thing. And I think the, the across-the-board uh, applicability of this passage is kind of part of James's genius here when he's talking about this idea here. Because not every community, not every church, and remember, he's writing this to a variety of contexts. This isn't to just one church. Not every community is going to have someone with a gift of supernatural healing. But every church has or ought to have leadership in place, some sort of form of a council or eldership in place, these people who are called to lead the church, nurture the church, pray for the church. So he's saying you guys can all do this. In all circumstances, you can do this. I think that's part of what makes it such a brilliant teaching here. And Bruce will be leading a bit of a time of response to this later, and he's going to speak to this a little bit more. But what's the deal with this oil stuff? He's talking about anointing people with oil. So that's something that might catch us off guard a little bit. Uh, First of all, in in the Old Testament, you see people appointed uh, for God-ordained tasks by having themselves anointed with oil. This is something that happens often in the Old Testament. And the, the, like, it's just the idea of smearing. The word anoint literally means to smear oil on somebody. They're just getting rubbed with oil on their, on their head or whatever. And uh, in, the, in these cases, in the Old Testament, oil serves a very practical purpose of sort of like a divine flea protection. It's just this idea of cleanliness and protecting yourself from uncleanness. And if you're familiar with uh, some of the things that the Old Testament has to say about ritual purity, you see it more in some books than others, but if you're familiar with that a little bit, you'll know that this language of being clean and not letting yourself become unclean is very important. It comes up a lot. And we sometimes get really muddled by this stuff and, and you know, don't really know what to do with it, and that's fair because it is really weird, transcultural stuff far away from us. But the basic idea behind this is just God is pure. God is holy. God is complete. God is perfect. God is not lacking in anything. He has nothing on him that is defiling him at any time. He's complete. He's full. And so those who are coming particularly close to his presence need to make sure that they're doing so in a fitting manner. So that's why you see that as such an important thing throughout the Old Testament. So the king gets oil smeared on him. The king gets this oil smeared on him, literally protecting him from lice and fleas and all these other sorts of things so that he's that much more prepared for God's presence to be with them and to enter into the temple. Now, this is an Old Testament Jewish idea, and the New Testament message of the gospel addresses this idea of purity in all sorts of ways, all sorts of very important ways. But the thing to catch is that this anointing, here in James, this anointing is essentially a symbolic mark of the presence of God. That's kind of our best clue of understanding why this would have been important to James. It's this mark of the presence of God. In a special physical way, in a special physical way, the elders are inviting God's presence to be especially with this seriously ill person who needs God's presence especially with them. Now, the very important thing to notice here, the way that it's laid out, is that this oil isn't magic. This oil itself isn't actually doing anything. This oil doesn't guarantee effectiveness. It doesn't catch God's attention in a special way. You know, we've been trying all these normal prayers, but 
they don't seem to be working, so we're going to do this extra special deluxe version of prayer. That's, that's not the idea here at all. That's not what's going on. The main point is the prayer. And you see that in the passage. The main point is the prayer. That's the actual command that James is giving. Pray over this person. Pray over this person. The anointing is just a circumstantial thing that happens in the midst of the main command to pray. So pray for these people. While you do so, be anointing them. So the main command is to pray. And notice, it's done in the name of the Lord. At the very start of the book, James introduces himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is all under the authority of Jesus. It's all in the name of the Lord, according to his will, according to his power. That's where the power comes from. Not not the physical substance or anything like that. And then in verse 15, James even says, the prayer of faith, not the oil, not the ritual, will save the weak person and will raise them up. So you might think that all these disclaimers, all of these sorts of explanations, are kind of getting at the point of saying, okay, ancient world thing, far away, too far in the past, too much cultural distance, not for us, not for anything that we should be doing. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I don't think that should be the case. For one thing, James himself was certainly thinking of primarily symbolic significance when he's talking about anointing here. He himself would have been thinking about this in terms of symbolism. That's the value of it here. So there's no reason to think that the symbolic richness that he wanted, we shouldn't get to have or we shouldn't be able to enjoy. There's no reason to think that that shouldn't translate over into our culture. Another thing is that James would have certainly known about healings that take place apart from this anointing. Especially if we keep in mind the fact that this is likely the brother of Jesus writing this letter. Saw many of the things that Jesus did. Oil wasn't always involved in all of them. So he knew that healing, God can do whatever he wants in whatever circumstance. That's always the case. James knew that. So it's not like he thinks that this is an absolutely necessary thing that needs to happen before healing can take place or before the sick can be prayed for. And the final reason could be that this, this sort of symbolism is important because we are embodied beings. That, that's very important. That's very important for us to remember because we do push that to the side often. You know, we, we baptize people in real, actual water. Right? When we take communion, we're eating real, actual food. When we pray for people, we do that lots at this church. When we pray for people, we physically lay our hands on them. We raise our hands in worship. These are things that we do. We don't, the Christian life is very much practiced bodily. We're embodied people, and that's very important. And, it, and it's not a healthy instinct for us to always want to take kind of a razor to things, a razor's edge to things, and figure out, okay, how can I cut this down to the most simple, most spiritualized, most disembodied, most utilitarian, practical way to do things? And that's what we do lots. You know, we look at these things and we say, okay, no, just get to the real kind of spiritual meat of all this and leave all that stuff to the side. And that's, that's not always a healthy thing for us to do because we don't live the rest of our lives that way. We don't. We don't live the rest of our lives that way. Embodiment, physical presence is very important. You have a loved one, you want to be with them. You don't say talking on the phone to them for your whole life is enough. We're embodied people and we don't live the rest of our lives that way so it shouldn't be the case when it comes to prayer and worship and our Christian practice. So let the oil happen. If you want the oil, let the oil happen. In verse 15, uh, James assures that the prayer of faith will save the weak person and raise them up. 
You notice how he says this is a will thing. It will raise them up. It will save this person. So reading this, we might be tempted to think, okay, we found the right formula. We found the right formula to get results. James gives it to us here. As long as we follow these steps, it will happen. That's all there is to it. But this is where it's very important, just like any time when we're reading Scripture, but especially in this book, it's very important to keep James's whole message in mind when we're reading its particular parts. Very important to read it in light of the whole. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, our text was this bit in chapter 4 where James is criticizing people for arrogantly assuming that they know how their life is going to go. So they're saying, I'm going to go to this town, I'm going to live there this long, this is what I'm going to do. They're not taking into account the Lord's will at all. They think they're the master of their own fate, and they talk like it. And James says, no, you're boasting of evil. You're boasting in an evil way. You're being arrogant. And he calls them on it. And he says, when you do this, you're boasting of evil. You're, you're, you're a transient mist, he says. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. You're entirely dependent on God. And you know that, and you need to be aware of that. You never call the shots, and your speech needs to reflect your sincere belief that your life, your existence, breath in your lungs, depends on the grace and the will of God. And we need to talk like that, James says. And he makes, it's a very strong point that he's making when he says that. So with that in mind, with that passage in mind, we can know without a doubt that James would never, ever assume that we should approach prayer with the attitude that we can always be certain of the result that God wants to give to us. Because he's already warned us, no, 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 you need to recognize if it's the Lord's will, these things are going to happen. And he calls them on that. So he would never be saying that. God's right and authority to overrule our own desires, even if they're sincerely asked for out of a good place of our hearts, God's right and authority to overrule these things must humbly be kept in mind. Always. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer we're supposed to pray. And the supreme uh, biblical example of this, of this kind of humility in prayer is in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, it's this passage where Paul is talking about how he's prayed three times for the Lord to remove a thorn from his flesh. And he was tormenting him. It's a messenger from Satan, he says. And I asked three times, and God lets it remain. He lets it stay. And this is Paul. Like, you know, like, this is Paul. This is a guy who knows how to pray. This is a guy whose writings we turn to when we're trying to learn how to pray. He knows how to pray. And this is a guy who has his prayers answered often. You know, you'd think if there's anybody who could have a prayer answered, Paul could get his prayers answered. Yet God lets it remain. God denies his request. But only because God was working out his own better purpose of teaching Paul the way of cross-shaped weakness. Which is infinitely better. And Paul had to come to that realization that that's better. I want that. I want that weakness. I want to share in the Lord's sufferings. And that's what he's teaching me through this. But even still, so again, we're giving all these disclaimers, but even still, James does want these prayers to happen. Okay, so he doesn't give this warning to always account for the Lord's will and say, you know what, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, no point in even praying. No, he's wrapping up the letter saying, pray. Pray and pray boldly. Be a praying people. And if you remember back to uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he, he talks about praying and asking for wisdom and asking for things to happen. And James says, the one praying shouldn't doubt. 
And that, that was a whole different sermon, so we're not going to get into that a lot, but it's kind of this confusing thing. Like, we're supposed to be subject to the Lord's will and his desires, yet we're not supposed to doubt. Like, what's, what's going on with that? But when you read it in light of the whole thing, it seems that what James is getting at is it's not that we shouldn't doubt the results of what we're asking for. It's not that we need to believe so strongly I'm going to get what I ask for and then it'll happen. In the context of what James is talking about, he's saying don't doubt God's goodness. Don't doubt his character. Don't doubt his love. Don't doubt that he's a generous God who gives wisdom to all who ask. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So James wraps up that section by saying, remember who this is. This is a generous God. Don't doubt his character. Don't doubt who he is. So there's this boldness and a humility that seems to be kept in tension here. And we need to learn how to keep that in tension. And it's a difficult thing to hold these things together. James wants these prayers to happen. And he certainly wouldn't want us to avoid praying just because we're so resigned to the will of God so we're not going to pray. He wouldn't want that to happen. But we should never stop praying because we've already assumed that God isn't going to do something that we ask for. That would negate everything that's going on here. We need to remember God deeply loves his people. He deeply loves his people. He, he hears their prayers. He answers them in his own way, according to his sovereignty, according to his wisdom, but he answers them and he hears them. So we're called to be this people who recognize, account for the will of the Lord, but we're also called to be a people who pray and are praying often, constantly. And that's what he's getting at here. Uh, James gets to a really interesting and important bit at the end of, of verse 15 and going to verse 16. He talks about the sins that the sick person might have committed being forgiven. If he has any sins, they'll be forgiven. And then he gives this command for us to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. And James is aware that sin has consequences. James is aware sin has consequences and at times, at times, one of those consequences might even be physical ailment. That's the implication of this text here. That's what he's getting at. Now, he's absolutely, absolutely not saying, like how some of Job's unwise friends said. He's not saying that there must always be some sort of hidden secret sin lurking in the background anytime there's suffering going on. Not saying that. We know from the witness of scripture that that's an unwise conclusion to have. He's not saying that at all. Nor is he saying that every time someone is ill, they need to be, you know, obsessively looking into their own heart, into their own conscience to try to figure out, okay, what thing haven't I confessed? What's going on here? He's not, he's not saying that. But he does leave open the possibility that in some cases, past sins might be causing current ailments. And he's leaving open that possibility. As weird of a thing, and as hard of a thing as that is for us to wrap our minds around, he's definitely leaving that open as a possibility. And if anything, it seems to be implied here that the confessing person, the one called to confess sins, would be well aware of what needs to be confessed. You know, because the command isn't to rack yourself with guilt, looking into your heart, trying to figure out all these things, losing sleep at night, figuring out what sin you haven't confessed. The command isn't to do that. The command is confess sins. Implying, assuming, you know those sins that you need to confess, now do it. This is something that needs to happen. Again, James is concerned with the health of the community and our relationship with one another in the body. And even apart from the issue of physical sickness, 
James knows that sincere, humble confession to, to one another always brings healing in a larger sense, in a spiritual sense, in a very real, meaningful sense. You know, it's ridiculous to imagine that James would urge, he would urge us to confession when physical ailment is the result of it all, but not when the result is some other sort of pain or some other sort of discord or difficulty. That, that, that wouldn't make sense at all for him to want it in one case and not in this other case, especially when this other case is the thing that destroys churches time and time again. And this is something that we struggle with in the Protestant tradition. We do. We really struggle with this, this idea of confessing sin to one another. We're more than happy, or most of the time, we're more than happy to confess our sin to Jesus, to confess our sin to God, to let him deal with it. That is important. That's very central. But we struggle with this idea of confessing to one another. We're very happy to know that Jesus alone is our great high priest. He is the one alone who forgives sins. We don't need a human intermediary to have access to God and to his forgiveness and to his mercy. We're very happy to hold on to that stuff. So traditionally, we really often downplay the importance of confessing sin to one another. And this this is just historically true. But when we do that, when we downplay that, we often miss out on very significant healing that can come as a result. And for those of us who have been in those experiences of forgiveness and confession, reconciliation, it's, it's hard, it's hard, but it's powerful. And God does stuff in them. Very real things, and he shows up in a very real way. Um, a number of weeks ago, I mentioned Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I kind of quoted some stuff that he said about cheap grace. And I want to bring him in again here, because I think Bonhoeffer, better than anybody, he kind of expresses, he expresses the real power that can be found in confessing sin in a, in a local community. Okay, this, he's not talking about a, some big, grandiose public display of false humility. He's talking about an issue between you and your brother or sister that needs to be dealt with. And he's talking about the power that comes from that and the, and, and the grace-filled freedom that comes as a result. So I'm just going to read this whole quotation here because he says it so well. So this is from a book by Bonhoeffer. It's called Life Together. He says this, In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. Sin wants to take them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. Sin shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen in the midst of a pious, worshiping community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks in to the darkness and closed isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said openly and confessed. All that is secret and hidden comes to light. It is a hard struggle until the sin crosses one's lips in confession, but God breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. He's quoting a psalm there. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of another Christian, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned, is left aside. The sinner surrenders, giving up all evil, giving the sinner's heart to God, 
finding the forgiveness of all one's sins in the community of Jesus and other Christians. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all its power. It has been revealed, it has been judged as sin, and it can no longer tear apart the community. So those are his words on the importance of confession in the Christian community. They're very convicting words. They're very powerful words. And he wrote that in a time when under the Nazi regime, he's leading an underground seminary. And it's all these young dudes who want to get together and learn theology and read the Bible and want to resist all the things that these compromised churches are going with. And Bonhoeffer knows that the only way that this is going to have any legs is if there's real, actual peace and accord within our community. So he wants to deal with this stuff. And he wants to make sure that they have an approach of how they're going to handle it. So it's this very profound explanation of this. I I love when he says, in confession, the last stronghold is abandoned. He's talking about the stronghold of pride, of self-justification. You're no longer putting on airs that you're better than others when you confess to somebody. It's a humbling thing. There's no longer this pretense. Bruce talked about how in church we can, we can be these people who let our pretenses go. And that's what this is about. There's no pretense. These airs are down. These guards are down. You're actually admitting to the person that you're just as in need of grace as they are. Every bit, if not more so. And that's when Jesus is pleased to just flood his light into that situation. And then there's this beautiful promise that he ends with. Sin that has been confessed has lost all of its power because it's been explicitly revealed as sin. So keep in mind, he's not at all talking about this is the, this is the main way of confession. You don't confess to God, you don't pray to God, it's just to each other. He's not at all saying that. This is all assuming that these are Christians who love the Lord and are in prayer to Jesus He's assuming that those are the sorts of people doing this, but then he's saying this needs to be brought to the light, named for what it is, named as the evil thing it is, and then done away with. And it gets rid of that last stronghold of self-justification. Jesus talks about the same thing, Matthew 18. He says, when your brother sins against you, go and talk to him directly, in private. Address him, point out his fault to him. If he hears you, you've gained your brother back. So like, this is a very explicit command that Jesus gives too, about dealing with, difficulty and confrontation and reconciliation that needs to happen in the Christian community. So James and Jesus both call us to this practice. Now, the challenge for us in our age is to know healthy and wise ways to practice this, which isn't easy at all. Because this is not something that should be done flippantly or too hastily. This isn't something that should be done... uh, rashly without thinking through whether this is actually going to bring help and healing in the situation. And by the way, most of the time, if we pray earnestly and honestly, if we pray, God, am I to confess this to somebody? He'll, he'll let you know in most situations. But in other situations, sometimes it's not a healthy thing to do, and really we're just fracturing the relationship more because we're bringing up things that didn't need to be brought up, and really it could have been dealt with in a different way. So we need to think of, of wise ways to practice this. It's also not something to be done publicly, like I mentioned before. It's not supposed to impact the, the people beyond who are the ones who are actually involved. The ones who are actually caught up and dealing with this issue are the ones who are to be involved in this act of confession. But it does need to happen in contexts that call for it, in contexts that require it. That's what James is saying. Uh, to begin to wrap up here, like a good Jewish teacher, James, he, he takes verses 17 and 18, he points to this Old Testament example of Elijah. 
He says, Elijah was a man who prayed fervently. He prayed according to the will of God, humbly subjecting his request to God's will, and God did mighty things. So, so essentially here, he's saying, Elijah prayed. Elijah actually prayed. Like, he actually did it. He did these things. He didn't just subject it all to God's will and leave it. He actually prayed. And then in verses 19 to 20, uh, James wraps up his letter with this interesting bit about bringing back the one who's wandered from the truth. And this might seem a little bit out of place, I think. This might seem a bit out of place. I mean, James has been talking about confession and healing and prayer and illness and suffering, and now all of a sudden he's talking about this. People who have gone astray, people who have wandered from the truth. But if we remember and keep in mind that James is always concerned about the health of the community, the health of the broader body, if we keep that in mind, and, and if we also keep in mind that James is concerned about the people of God corporately looking like their God, being in fellowship with him, walking with him, if we keep that in mind, it makes complete sense that James would have instructions about how to deal with it when someone's wandered away from this fellowship. Because he wants them to come back in and restore that health, restore that unity again. Also, you can connect this back to the idea of healthily handling sin and handling confession that people commit, or sins that people commit against one another, and it does make a lot of sense why he would end with this. Because what's, what's one of the main reasons why people wander from the truth? One of the main reasons people wander from the truth is, is unresolved personal grievances. One of the main reasons people wander from the truth is, is sin-infected, fractured relationships that haven't been brought to restoration. And, and those are some of the real heart issues at the root of things that are going on when people wander away from the truth. And I think a lot of us know that. And sometimes that's the real thing at root, and then it kind of gets covered up with all this language of like, I have this issue, and I have this nitpicky issue, and the theology here I don't really agree with. And really, it's often not that kind of stuff. It's these other things that are going on that are causing us to make these other excuses. So it really does tie together. It really does connect. Uh, Professor Craig Blomberg, he says this, about these verses. He says, helping bring back wayward Christians securely into the fold just might constitute one of the most neglected responsibilities of the church today. So he's saying there's this biblical command here. It's a, it's a responsibility, but we neglect this often. And we have different reasons for neglecting it. And it's a hard thing to do. You know, James isn't giving us directions of exactly how to do this. It is a difficult thing to do, but it's a responsibility nonetheless. And it's something that he's pointing us to and commanding us to here. We're called to do this. We're not called to talk about them. You know, you keep in mind some of the stuff that James has said about, about gossip and just how the tongue can set a forest fire ablaze. We're not called to talk about them. We're called to talk to them. We're called to lovingly engage with them. Not, not as a project. Not as, oh, somebody left our club and we just want more members in our club so we've got to get them back in and that's all there is to it. It's, it's not a project. It's as a human being made in the image of God with real legitimate struggles, questions, issues like we all have and actually engaging with them lovingly and gently restoring them. Blomberg goes on to say this. And I just found this super convicting here. He says, If Christians spent even half the time taking their concerns about other people directly to them, in gentleness and love, rather than complaining about them to others, we would be far healthier individually and collectively. 
You know, it's just an obviously true statement. If we spent half the time doing that as we do talking about people in a way that doesn't actually engage them, far healthier. And that's one of the main things James is getting at, and that's a convicting thing. So just some closing thoughts on on James here as we wrap up and conclude this series. Uh, We've tried to point out a few times throughout this that James can be read as this kind of, you know, do this, don't do that, filled with commands, always being told what to do sort of book. And depending on what kind of person you are, that can either, you can either love that, because sweet, I have a manual here, I can just follow this and this is all I have to do, or it can suck the life out of you because it's, it's, it's not grace-filled. It's not, it's not filled with just kind of a, a nice, healthy motivation to want to do these things. It's just being told what to do. And often we've tried to point out that that's, that's not what James is getting at here. James is always saying, let's look at our God. Let's look at his character. Let's look at who he is. Let's look at what he's done for us. And let's just try to model that. Let's try to be like our God. Let's look like our God. We're people made in the image of God and we're called to reflect his glory and beauty and goodness to the watching world. And that's what James is getting at. So yeah, it it gets harsh and it gets direct sometimes, but it's because he wants us to look like the God that we serve. And we've tried to draw attention to that because God is good and we're called to look like our good God. And the supreme example, the supreme example of God's utter glory, justice, mercy, love is in the cross. It is. It's in the cross and it's in what Jesus did on the cross and it's in the truth of the gospel message and all of the implications that that has. And, and like that's so important to remember because you can read a book like this and say, okay, the cross isn't coming up explicitly a whole bunch of times. That's not really going on. But when you remember this, you realize that the cross casts a shadow over everything that's going on in this book. That's how we know that God is good. Is the truth of the gospel and the truth of the cross. That's how we know that he's actually good. And we want to look like that good God. So this is God's word. This is God's word to us, this book of James. And we've been trying to hear it, and we've been trying to respond to it. And like we mentioned at the start, uh, God's word demands a response. All the circumstances we face in life demand a response. But God's word especially commands our attention and demands a response. So as we, as we wrap up here, Brad and then Bruce are going to lead us in a bit of time of response to this and just trying to learn what does it mean for us as a community to be obedient to these things. So let me close in prayer and we'll just think about how we can respond to God here. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, we thank you for the truth of who you are. And God, I just thank you that you're, you're good and you're better than we could have ever imagined. And Lord, for those of us who have feelings of uh, just, just lie and, and, and guilt and just false things being spoken to our hearts, I ask that you can remove those. And I ask that you can help us to understand what it means that you're a glorious, merciful, loving God. And we can know that when we sing worship songs to you and when our eyes look up to that cross. And we can know that you're a God of mercy and love and patience. You're a God who calls us back to yourself. And Lord, you've done that. You've done that beyond and and, and apart from anything we've ever done. But but we recognize that we're called to respond to that. And that, that impacts us, that changes our life, and that's a lot of what this book is getting at. So, Lord, in my life, in our life, in our life as a community, help us to be people who just want to live the life of God and exist as people who reflect your character. Um, Give us courage to pray. 
Give us courage to confess. Give us courage to trust that your goodness and your mercy is so much greater than we can ever understand, so we don't need to be scared to do those things. Lord, because I just sense that there's some of us here who, who have a fear to, to confess, a fear to pray, because we're not quite sure just how good you are. So please just flood our hearts with a sense of your goodness. And lead us as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.